Good morning. That was a very fitting hymn that was selected. There was uh, more than one, more than two, more than three. I'm not sure how many newborn babies there are being held in the back, but it's, uh, we'll, we'll call it a baby boom. I think the, the baby bonus program in our church is working. So uh, the, the checks will be in the mail. <laughs> no, that hasn't been formalized yet? Okay, well, we'll keep working on that one. But we want to, as a church family, just uh, give our sincere and, and uh, congratulations to all of the, the new parents. And uh, we want to let you know as well that we are here as a church family to help you in raising these children as well and, and to bless you. So uh, I hope that you feel that here today. We are continuing in our series, uh, into part three of our series this week, entitled Prepared to Give an Answer. And so I would invite you to bow with me as we prepare to hear from God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that by it we have truth, and that by the truth we are set free. Lord, we understand that as people, your truth confronts us, and there are many things from your word that are difficult for us to hear, especially as they challenge the way that we live, the things that we believe. And so, Lord, as we examine a very challenging truth from your word today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding. I pray as well, Lord, that you would be with me and give me the right spirit to share this from your word. I pray that the words would be yours. I pray, Lord, a special blessing for anyone in this church family whose heart is burdened for those that they know, friends or family, who don't know you. And so I pray, Lord, that through this time you would work within us, that we would be further equipped and prepared to give an answer to anyone who would ask a reason for why we have the hope that we do, for why we believe the way that we do. And they often challenge us with their questions, and so I pray that by examining these difficult questions, we would be further equipped to know how to respond wisely and well to point to you and allow your Holy Spirit to work in the person who asks. And so we ask for your guidance in all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. In this series, for those of you who may be uh, hearing it for the first time or have only caught one part of the series so far, we are looking at the field of apologetics, which is the term to describe pardon me, the term to describe giving reasons for our faith or making a defense of the faith. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, we are instructed, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, being prepared to give an answer today is just as important as it was in Peter's day when he first penned these words. Especially when we consider that today in Canada, we are living in a post-Christian culture. Almost all pastors, theologians, sociologists will agree that we are living in a post-Christian age. And by that they mean that there was a time where we could have called this a Christian age, a Christian nation where the fundamental beliefs of the nation, even those who didn't attend church, were still based upon Christianity. But we have now moved beyond that. We have moved past that. And now the standard for morality, for ethics, for beliefs is no longer based on Christian values the way that it was a generation ago. And so as we recognize this, we must also recognize that we as a church must adapt in how we engage the culture around us with the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must be prepared 
to engage this changing landscape around us. This landscape has almost entirely rejected the basic teachings of Christianity as at best old-fashioned and fairy tales, or at worst, they have deemed our beliefs judgmental, intolerant, and in some cases even dangerous. And so to this, Jesus' words seem applicable. We must be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And so this takes discernment and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now to recap for those of you who weren't here, in part one of our series, we learned that the use of apologetics, giving defense for our faith, though it helps remove barriers that people have to placing faith in God, we must remember we cannot argue someone into placing their faith in God. For though it appears to be an intellectual battle, we must remember it is actually a spiritual battle. And so as we equip ourselves to give an answer through study and through learning, we must also depend upon the Holy Spirit to work through us. And we must not be swayed by the desire to fit in. We must speak the truth. We must be discerning of the motives of the person we are answering. And we must be creative to speak in a way that people can understand. In part two of our series, we ask the big question, why does God allow evil? And from Genesis chapter 1 to 3, we learn that God chose to create man like himself as a free-thinking, free-choosing people, and that he would not violate our free will no matter what. No matter what consequence came as a result, he would not violate man's free will. For God desires desired and still does that man be free to choose to walk in a relationship with him. And in order for that choice to be real, the alternative to disobey, to walk away from him, has to be equally real. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was planted in the garden. And we know, of course, that Adam and Eve chose to disobey. They ate of the tree. And sin and all of the evil in the world came about as a consequence. You see, the responsibility for the ongoing presence of evil in our world is not at God's feet, it's at our feet. The responsibility for evil is with man, not with God, for we have chosen the alternative. We have chosen disobedience, and so evil is in the world. And for God cannot destroy evil without destroying our free will, and so that is why we have evil in the world today. And now today we are going to continue along this vein of of thought And we're going to look at one of the biggest questions that many non-believing people ask. And I hope that no one can accuse me of dodging the tough questions because I decided to go after the hardest questions because if we're we're going to avoid these as a church, how are we going to be prepared to answer them when non-believing people ask us things like this? So here's the question. How can a loving God send people to hell? Has anyone here ever been asked that question before? Anyone? A few of you have. Okay. It shows how prevalent this question is. This is one that that we as a church may want to avoid, but the world around us, they know what we believe, and they want to know the answer to this question. How did you respond when you were asked this question? If you haven't been asked this question, how would you respond? And that's what I want us to start thinking about this morning. Now, if you're at all like me, you're not overly comfortable answering this question. Most people don't like to talk about hell, and frankly, I don't enjoy preaching on it either. And the fact is that many churches in Canada have all but stopped preaching or even mentioning the biblical teaching about God's coming judgment on sin. And the reasons why 
are entirely understandable. The straightforward teaching that people who reject Jesus as their Savior will go to hell is uncomfortable, it is unpleasant, and it seems oh so judgmental. And so even for us as Christians, we'd rather not talk about it, we'd rather not hear about it, we'd even rather not think about it. But this isn't anything new. When the evangelist Vance Havner was beginning his ministry many years ago, he pastored a small country church where a farmer didn't like the sermons he had preached on the subject of hell. So one day the farmer confronts him and tells him, just preach about the meek and lowly Jesus who loves sinners. To which Havner had replied, who do you think I got my information from hell from? You see, the fact is Jesus talked about hell. In fact, he mentions it directly 11 times in the Gospels. Now, to be sure, Jesus didn't talk about it all the time, but neither did he avoid the subject. He spoke about it directly and clearly, describing it as a very real and irreversible destination. He described it as a place of suffering. He described it as a place of separation from God that all people who refused to place their faith in him would go. He also makes it very clear that God desires that no one need to go there. That God's heart is that everyone would be able to avoid this destination. And so he speaks about hell not to give judgment, but to give warning. In essence, Jesus is saying, do whatever it takes not to go there. In one of his teachings, he goes to the extreme of saying, you're better off cutting off your hands or gouging out an eye to avoid going there. He's, he's bringing across the point that it's of utmost urgency to do everything in your power to make sure that this is not your destination. And so if the Lord Jesus speaks of it as a very real place, then as people of the book who believe this is God's word, that his truth has been revealed to all men through it, as people of the book... We believe his word is true. We have to take this teaching very seriously because eternity is hanging in the balance. Perhaps you've heard the story about the message that one man left on his tombstone. The inscription read, Consider, young man, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon shall be, so prepare, young man, to follow me. Well, that sounded very profound. But one fellow took a knife and scratched a response on the tombstone that read, To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. Now, this is also a profound truth, isn't it? Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 to 46 couldn't possibly be more clear that there are only two directions one can go after death. There is heaven and there is hell. Listen to what he says in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And now listen to what he says to the sheep on his right in verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Sounds good. But then listen to what he says to the goats on his left, verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus then concludes the teaching with the most straightforward statement possible in verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now I share all of this with you as a preface, if you will, to answering the big question. The reason I share all of this as a preface is because sometimes even we as Christians need to be persuaded and or reminded that hell is real. If our Lord and Savior, our Master, told us as much as plainly as possible, then we must take this seriously. For if the Son of God told us this, we must trust that He knows exactly what He's talking about. This is not some fringe doctrine that we can avoid or tuck away in a dusty corner of the church basement because it makes us uncomfortable. For if it is real, as Jesus said it was, then it should be cause for sober thought and consideration. There are two questions that come to mind when we broach a subject such as this. The first is, where do I stand before God? Personally, that's where we always must begin. Where do I stand? The second question is, and where do others I know stand before God? Pause for consideration. So now the question. How can a loving God send someone to hell? The answer comes to us today in three parts. The first part is this. A loving judge can still hand out a fair and just verdict. Now, oftentimes, cynics and skeptics ask this question with the implication that if God is loving, as the Bible reveals him to be, it says even straightforward, John tells us God is not just loving, God is love. Love emanates from him. The essence of God is love. So if God is this loving God, then he would not or should not be capable of handing out judgment. This is the argument. But I want you to turn now with me to 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. As you turn there, I'll share with you just a little bit the context of this passage. Now, the context is that the church in Thessalonica is experiencing intense persecution. And so Paul has written this second letter to them with one of the principal aims being to encourage them to persevere. And in verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul seeks to encourage them by saying this, Among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So basically, he's, he's giving them a, a pat on the back and he's saying, you're, you're persevering so well, we are bragging about you because you're, you're so faithful in the face of this persecution. He then seeks to continue to encourage them by reminding them that God is a fair and just judge who will vindicate them and punish their oppressors in due course. Listen to what he says in verses 5 to 6. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. So here we see three key things. God's judgment is right, God is just, and he will repay. Now, does God being a just God mean that he cannot also be a loving God at the same time? Well, I want you to consider this scenario. 
Imagine that a judge is presiding over the trial of a man accused of murder. The cases are made for and against. The evidence is examined. And finally, at the conclusion of the trial, the judge deliberates. He deliberates, he deliberates the verdict. And he can see that the accused man had done many good things in his life. He can also see that this man is a man of character and that for him to commit murder was very much out of character for the type of life that he had lived. And to finally put the icing on the cake of it all, he genuinely found himself liking this man accused of murder. The judge found even in his heart love for the man accused of murder. He, he loved him so much he desired nothing but the best for this man who was accused of murder. However, there's a problem. The judge can also see that beyond a shadow of a doubt, this man is guilty of first-degree murder. The evidence couldn't possibly be more clear. It is irrefutable and indisputable. The man is guilty. Then I want you to imagine that at the conclusion of all of this, the judge stands up to read the verdict and announce the sentence. And he says this, I have heard the cases, I have examined the evidence, and I have found beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man is guilty of murder. However, because I am a loving judge and I want the best for this man, I am letting him go free unpunished. How do you think the courtroom would respond to this scenario? The murderer celebrates. But what sort of reaction would that produce from the family of the murdered man? What sort of reaction would that produce from the greater society around who is watching this unfold? They would demand, where is the justice? Where is the justice on behalf of our murdered friend, family member? Where is the justice? You see, the truth is that no matter how deeply the judge loves the offender, justice must be served. The verdict must be read and the sentence must be given. A life for a life. Either behind bars in prison or even in some cases, the death penalty. I once had a young lady who after she had walked away from Christianity, she had grown up with it, she walked away from it. I once had her tell me, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell for eternity. I just can't believe in a God like that. And I finally had responded to her. Well, can you believe in a judge who sends murderers away to spend life in prison? Can you believe in a judge like that? You see, each is receiving the just and fair consequences for their actions. So part one of the answer. A loving judge can still hand out a fair and just verdict. Part two to the answer. We are measured by God's standards, not our own. We are measured by his standards. This is where you will often hear the response. But I'm not a murderer. In fact, I'm actually a very good person. And this is where I I like to flip the question. From how can a loving God send people to hell to this question. How can a perfect and holy God allow sinners into heaven? Have you ever thought about that? How can a holy God allow sinners into heaven? You see, in the exact same way that God is love, the Bible also says that God is holy. 
The Bible describes him as perfect in all of his ways, pure light without a speck of darkness, pure goodness without even a hint of evil in him. His holiness is the standard for what good is. And the Bible tells us repeatedly, be holy just as the Lord your God is holy. But it begs the question, how holy is holy enough? And does wearing holy jeans or drinking whole milk help me in this process? Well, the answers in order are perfectly holy, no, and no. So you can follow along with that. Be holy just as God is holy. What does this mean? You see, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, as you're well familiar, for all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. All have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. What this is all driving at is that the standard of being a good person that we use is based on other people. We, we say, I'm good because I'm better than so-and-so. I'm, I'm good because I'm better than him. I'm good because I'm better than her. And if you're somewhere on that scale, you can always find someone who's beneath you. And so relative to them, I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm not a murderer. I'm not this. I'm not that. So I'm good. But that is not the standard that God uses. God uses the standard of himself which is pure holiness, pure light, pure everything, not one speck of darkness in him. It is his standard that he uses. Our good is simply not good enough for heaven. Some of you might be familiar with Kirk Cameron, the Christian actor. And one of the things he has often done is he has mastered a a simple exercise for demonstrating to anyone this principle of how no matter how good we think we are, we're still not good enough for God. He'll often do this street interview, some of you might have seen it, where he interviews someone in the street and he asks them a series of questions. For example, he'll ask them, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? I have. I've told a few. We've all told lies, so what does that make us? A liar, right? So now we're self-admitted liars. He'll ask them that. They'll reply, yep, I'm a liar. He'll then do the exact same thing by asking them, have you ever stolen something? Doesn't need to be a car. Have you stolen a pen? You know, have you, have you stolen anything ever in your life? Well, what's that? A thief. So now we're a liar and a thief. He then continues by asking them, have you ever looked at anyone with lust? Have you ever looked at someone in an inappropriate way with lust? When the person invariably says yes, he then tells them that Jesus said, if anyone looks at a woman with lust in their heart, they are guilty of adultery. He then says, so according to God's word, you are an adulterer at heart. He then asks them if they've ever harbored hate or ill will against someone, ever, even for a small period of time, you've harbored hate against someone else. When most people say yes, he'll respond with Jesus' words, If anyone hates his brother, he is guilty of murder. He then summarizes it all by stating, So according to God's word and your own admission, you are a lying, thieving, murdering, adulterer at heart. Does that sound like someone that God would let into heaven? And almost without fail, the person will sheepishly respond with, No, I guess it doesn't. You see, we are measured by God's standard, not our own. And when all is said and done, 
Not one person will be able to say that God did not give them a fair and just trial. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 8 to 9, Paul describes that day like this. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now I want you to notice that one of the key descriptions of the punishment is that they are shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You see, our sinful selves simply cannot abide, remain in his glorious presence. It is his standard that we are being measured by, not our own. And the third part of the answer is this. The perfectly loving and perfectly holy judge has provided for both justice to be served and a way for the criminal to be pardoned and set free. He has provided a way. Let me demonstrate for you how by reading you a poem entitled The Judge's Daughter. The author is unknown. The snow was still falling and all had turned white. The day was a long one and now it was night. Right before Christmas was due to arrive, he heard many cases, but still one survived. Bring in the last case. Let's get out of here. When lo and behold, but who should appear? He knew her from childhood. They went back a ways. And here was the law now, his daughter to pay. The facts were presented, the judge clearly saw. No doubt about it, she'd broken the law. Now she was facing a fine or jail time. The judge knew his daughter could not pay the fine. What a dilemma for all there to see. Two roles to play, which one would he be? The role of a judge, there's justice to pay. The role of a father, his love to display. The judge started thinking he had to act fast. And then came to him solution at last. Down went the gavel. She's guilty as sin. No one could say now the judge wasn't in. Then came the next thing. Who would have guessed? He walked down beside her to write out a check. He said to his daughter, extending his hand, You can't buy your freedom, but surely I can. This story would end here, with everyone glad, but as it turns out, it ended quite sad. The payment he offered would now be rejected. The daughter so prideful, she would not accept it. If you think it foolish, the gift she turned down, remember the story, a truth to be found. God up in heaven, a judge to begin, then came down to die, the payment for sin. So when you consider the daughter her pride, remember your own. There's no need to die. In this poem, we see a judge upholding the law, justice being served, and yet out of his great love, also finding a way to pay the price. But still, the recipient is free to choose. Would they receive the gift or reject it? And this judge, no matter how badly he desired to pay the price for her, would not and could not violate her free will. And so it is between us people and God. God, a perfect, just, perfectly just God, and also a perfectly loving God, has served justice through the sacrifice of his own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The judgment and wrath of God upon all sin has been poured out on Jesus. The price has been paid. Justice has been served. 
and now the free gift is offered. But like the daughter, the choice is still ours. Will we receive the pardon and go free? Or will we, in our pride, in our own self-sufficiency, say, no, I'm, I'm good, I don't need that, I'll make it on my own? And we know that to that response, there is no other alternative. It is either through Jesus, through a gift of grace, or it is not at all. There is no other way. And so when we are asked the question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? Remember these three answers. The part one of the answer, a loving judge can still hand out and must hand out a fair and just verdict. Part two, we are measured by God's standard, not our own. And part three of the answer, the perfectly loving and perfectly holy judge has provided a way for both justice to be served and for the criminal to be pardoned and set free. But he will not violate our free will. Heaven is only for people who desire to be there, and it is only for people who receive the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ by placing their trust and faith in him. This is God's word. This is the truth. And I pray that for each one of us as we hear God's word that it would so work in our hearts that first of all we would know where we stand before God. That it is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we can stand right before God. That we can be assured that we are going to heaven. But I hope also that if you know the answer to that question for yourself that part two will also be sobering for you to think of those in your life who you know who are not in that position who heaven and hell, eternity is still hanging in the balance, and that our hearts would be so moved that we would pray for their salvation, and that we would pray that God would give us opportunity to speak truth into their lives with the hope that they too will place faith in Jesus Christ. And so may God stir us, his people, towards this end, that we could be used as instruments of salvation for many. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you as we consider that the only thing that stands between us and an eternity separated from you in a place of punishment called hell, the only thing that stands between is Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, and that his shed blood on the cross is the only thing that can cover atone for our many sins the many ways that we have transgressed and broken your law, the many ways that we have lied and cheated and stolen and lusted and been murderers even in our hearts, Lord. The only thing that can atone for all of that is your blood, Lord Jesus. We cannot stand in our own sufficiency. We are not good enough, for it is your standard we are measured against, and so we are humbled. So thank you for the cross. Thank you that Jesus stands between us and judgment. Thank you that because of your great love, heaven will be our eternal home through faith in Jesus. But Lord, we also desire and even are so bold as to ask, oh Lord, break our hearts. Give us genuine compassion for those who are not in this place, who are thinking that their own sufficiency, their own merit is going to be what brings them into your presence. And so, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts that we would have a burden, a genuine burden for those who don't yet know you, and that we would pray for their salvation, and that we would pray that you would give us an opportunity to speak your truth 
the gospel of Jesus Christ into their lives in some way, shape, or form, and that you would prepare us to have the right answer whenever we are asked questions such as these, knowing that even if it appears to be an attack, that perhaps deep down there is a genuine question, and that by your Holy Spirit you can break through and plant a seed that will bring forth in the end eternal life. For this is our desire, Lord. Use us, your people, in this church to bring your salvation to many in our community, in our families who don't yet know you. And Lord, if there are people here this morning who right now are feeling a deep grief for a loved one, even a, a, a spouse or a child or someone very close to them who they know are, are not right with you, I, Lord, Lord, I pray for special grace. I pray for special wisdom that their witness to this loved one could be clear and strong and that you would work through it to bring them to yourself. We pray this for your glory, Lord, and we ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.